Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bookish Babbles, the podcast where we reread our favorite books and chat about them. I'm your host, Allison, and without further ado, let's get started. everyone and welcome to episode 27 of bookish babbles today we are covering chapters 10 to 13 of catching fire by suzanne collins and we are officially on part two of the book woo like i don't know it feels like we're going through this book so fast like we're halfway through it already exciting things are happening and last week we got the dr gall casting announcement i can't believe viola davis is gonna be playing the role i'm so excited she no joke she's one of my favorite actresses and god she just always gives such amazing like powerful performances and i can't believe i didn't think of her right away for the role because oh my god she's so good um and i'm already terrified of her dr gall which is a good thing because <laughs> she's just that good but anyway um enough of, i know i'll be gushing over her and rachel as lucy gray when i see the movie so um be prepared everyone in my life sorry not sorry okay uh what else do i need to say oh right um but on the downside we did unfortunately get confirmation that pluribus bell won't be in the movie and for those who have listened to some of my ballad episodes of pluribus is a character who I grew to really love and appreciate during my last read-through. Um, if you need a reminder, uh, he's the one that owns the, like, club and an underground black market, helps the snows out, and he even, uh, loans Lucy Gray the guitar for her interview night. And Pluribus is also one of the very few, like, confirmed LGBTQ plus characters in the series, so it's a shame that he doesn't get to be in the film, but I'm still I'm still looking forward to it, obviously. Uh, I love the photo that Vanity released where we got our first look uh, at Tom and Rachel as Corey Lanus and Lucy Gray. And it looks so it looks so good. And I can't wait. Although I hope they don't, uh, especially marketing for the movie, I hope they don't romanticize the Coriolanus Lucy Gray relationship too much because it's not a real love story relationship like I wonder if they're just bumping that up for you know marketing purposes to try and sell it to audiences because that's not a real romantic relationship you know Coriolanus just wants to control Lucy Gray and just likes her when she's making him look good yeah because that's not true love from my understanding anyway um so someone just please invent time travel so I can go to the future and watch this movie right now. Because uh, I'd really appreciate that. And um, what else do I got going on? Oh, uh, I've been training for my new job the past couple of weeks and so far so good. Uh, in 90 days I'll have benefits so that's really exciting. And I'm already looking forward to having paid time off and planning trips because I love to travel. Alright, and, oh, one more thing before we get started, uh, the poll winner, so the next book tag I will be doing is the original tag by my friend Sarah, so, woo, yay, thank you everyone who voted, and I look forward to debuting my friend's tag on this podcast, so, yay, be on the lookout for that one. Alright, um, 
think that's everything I need to cover. So yeah, let's just get into the episode. All right. So last week, uh, Gale throws a hissy fit and then gets whipped by the new peacekeeper, which I don't feel as bad for him as I should. <laughs> Katniss, quote unquote, chooses to have a future with Gale, but we all know that resolve won't last long. Um, things get worse in District 12 once the new peacekeepers come to town, and when Katniss escapes to the lake, she meets with two people dressed up as peacekeepers, but are holding her Mockingjay symbol. Uh, this week, Katniss meets two runaways, uh, Bonnie and Twill, and they tell her about the uprisings in District 8. She has her wedding dress photo shoot, and they get some surprising news about the quarter quell. So with that being said, let's dive into chapter 10. Okay, so we are now officially on part two, which is called The Quell. And like I do with a lot of chapter openings, I, especially for a new part, I'm going to read a little bit of the first uh, page because it's what I do. It makes no sense. My bird baked into bread. Unlike the stylish rendering I saw in the Capitol, this is definitely not a fashion statement. What is it? What does that mean? I asked harshly, still prepared to kill. It means we're on your side. So when Katniss turns around, she sees a girl wearing a peacekeeper uniform that's much too large for her to wear. And she's using a large branch as a cane since she has sprained her ankle. And and now we're officially get to meet uh, Bonnie and Twill from District 8. And if you're listening and you've only seen the movies, uh, you have no idea who I'm talking about. And I get why they were, they weren't featured in the movie, you know, gotta cut some stuff for time. And they aren't, like, you know, absolutely essential to the plot. But it's still a big moment uh, because we get to hear about what's going on in different in a different district that, you know, isn't filtered through, like, the capital TV propaganda. And... It's also, like, Katniss gets to interact with someone from another district for the first time that isn't because of some, you know, Hunger Games-related activity. Uh, Twill is a woman in her 30s, and Bonnie is the young girl who also happens to be one of Twill's students. And I'm just gonna just read the conversation that Katniss has with them, uh, starting on page 140. Who are you, I ask warily, but less belligerently. My name's Twill, says the woman. She's older, maybe 35 or so. And this is Bonnie. We run away from District 8. District 8? They must know about the uprising. Where'd you get the uniforms, I ask. I stole them from the factory, says Bonnie. We make them there, only I thought this one would be for... for someone else. That's why it fits so poorly. The gun came from a dead peacekeeper, says Twill, following my eyes. That cracker in your hand, with the bird. What's that about, I ask. Don't you know, Katniss? Bonnie appears genuinely surprised. They recognize me. Of course they recognize me. My face is uncovered, and I'm standing here outside of District 12, pointing an arrow at them. Who else would I be? I know it matches the pin I wore in the arena. She doesn't know, says Bonnie softly. Maybe not about any of it. Suddenly I feel the need to appear on top of things. I know you had an uprising in 8. Yes, that's why we had to get out, says Twill. Well, you're good and out now. What are you going to do? We're headed for District 13, Twill replies. 13, I say? There's no 13. It got blown off the map. 75 years ago, says Twill. Bonnie shifts on her crutch and winces. What's wrong with your leg, I say? I twisted my ankle. My boots are too big, says Bonnie. 
I bite my lip. My instincts tell me they're telling the truth, and behind that truth is a whole lot of information I'd like to get. I step forward to retrieve Twill's gun before lowering my bow, though. Then I hesitate a moment, thinking of another day in this woods when Gail and I watched a hovercraft appear out of thin air and capture two escapees from the capital. The boy was speared and killed. The redhead girl, I found out when I went to the capital, was mutilated and turned into a mute servant called an Avox. Anyone after you? We don't think so. We think they believe we were killed in a factory explosion, says Twill. Only a fluke that we weren't. All right, let's go inside, I say. And another reason that this scene is so significant in the book, um, it's the first time we're told of the possibility that District 13 survived in some way, and that there is a force out there to oppose the capital. Uh, once they get inside, Katniss sees that Twill has been attempting to make tea using pine needles, and remembers how District 8 is like a large uh, urban place with barely a patch of grass anywhere, so people from there would rarely have the chance to learn the ways of nature, and they are very much out of food. So luckily for them, Katniss is there with a bag of food. Uh, since the number of people in t um, starving in dis District 12 has increased, uh, Katniss has a habit of leaving the house with a bag of food to give some away. Her priorities being Gail's family, uh, Greasy Say, and some other former hob traders who were shut down because, you know, thread sucks. And the reason she has a bag of food now was because she wanted to make it look like she was gone to pass out food so that her mother doesn't worry. Also, um, like with most episodes, I feel the need to bring up the whole Gracie Says Lucy Gray theory because um, Suzanne chose specifically to name her in the text just now. Interesting. Anyway, um, I don't know what that voice was. Uh, Bonnie is excited because uh, she's surprised to have that much food for her, which reminds Katniss of the time in the arena when Rue was excited to have a whole uh, gruesling lake to herself, because, you know, just another quick reminder that the capital sucks, and they are totally cool with most of their population being chronically hungry. Um, so after Bonnie and Twill are done eating, they tell Katniss their story. So after Katniss and Peeta won the Hunger Games, the discontent in Eight uh, only grew stronger and the talk to do something turned into a reality uh, since they were inspired by the whole uh, tr berry trick. And because most of the citizens work in the textile factory with loud machinery, it's harder for them to be overheard so they could organize themselves better. Uh, after school, Bonnie and Twill, they work in a factory that specializes in making peacekeeper uniforms. So over time, Bonnie was able to gather the pieces for two full uniforms originally meant for Twill and her husband so they could escape and, you know, get the word out about what's going on in eight to the other districts. And the day Katniss and Peeta were there for the victory tour had been a sort of rehearsal. Uh, people positioned themselves in the spot where they were going to be when the rebellion broke out. Their plan was to take over centers of power in the city like the Justice Building, uh, Peacekeeper Headquarters, Armory, Communication Center, communication center uh, Power Station, places like that. And the plan ultimately worked. Uh, during the, the night of Katniss and Peeta's engagement, it gave the people of Eight the perfect excuse to gather out in town after dark since that was, you know, 
obviously a big deal part of the victory tour because any other time would have raised suspicion uh, if that many of them gathered outside and and at eight o'clock all hell broke loose uh, the peacekeepers were very much caught off guard and the plan looked like it was going to work uh, now they just had to get word out to the other districts but naturally the capital retaliated thousands of peacekeepers were sent in and bombed the rebels stronghold and with all the chaos, people were lucky to make it home alive, and in less than 48 hours, the district is subdued, and there was a lockdown for a week. No food, no coal, they're forbidden to leave their homes, and the only time anything came on TV is to watch, uh, you know, suspected instigators be hanged. So lovely. And while I was reading that, rereading this part, um, I thought of another character who I think would warrant a solo book, and... Hot take, I think this character deserves a solo book more than Hamish, and that's Commander Paler, aka future president of Pan Am, spoiler alert for Mockingjay, I guess, and uh, we'll get more into Paler since she's introduced in the next book, but we know she's directly involved in the uprising in 8. Um, it would be a really interesting uh, point of view, because everything she's going through in Catching Fire, and, you know, who well... Who knows, like, what else she's been through in her past. Like, like all this would be setting her up to be a leader of Penem. But anyway, uh, back to Bonnie and Twill's story. Uh, once in the district was on the brink of starvation, it's back to business as usual because uh, that's what society does when something crazy happens, I guess. And one day when Bonnie and Twill were on their way to their factory shift after school and they were late due to their u usual route being blocked by rubble from recent bombings. So they were still a safe distance away when the factory blew up, killing Twill's husband and Bonnie's entire family. So they fled back to Twill's place, gathered what they could, put on the peacekeeper uniforms and they got out of eight. Uh, luckily, no one is looking for them since... Yeah, as was stated earlier, they were presumed dead when the factory exploded. And now they're headed to District 13. Uh, what's in District 13, you may ask? Well, even they don't really know. Uh, they're just really hoping that something is there. And the reason being that the footage they always see of District 13 that's shown on TV is the same footage. It's never anything new. Like, a different reporter just gets edited into the footage. So, they don't actually know what the district currently looks like. Um, the footage is always in front of the Justice Building, and if you look uh, very closely, you'll see a glimpse of a Mockingjay as it flies by in like the top right-hand corner of the screen. And that's enough to give Twill and Bonnie hope that 13 somehow survived and moved underground, and that the capital leaves them alone because back during the Dark Days, 13's principal industry was nuclear development, and, you know, uh, being graphite miners was, you know, just kind of a front and only part of their story. Because, reminder, the capital only shares information they want their citizens to know. And even most capital citizens don't know the truth about 13. We saw in Ballad that young Coriolanus believes the place was completely destroyed just like everyone else. Uh, then Katniss starts to feel a bit hopeful that 13 is alive, that there could possibly be a force out there to finally oppose the capital. So, uh, with that being said, I'm going to do a quick reading. Um, starts toward the bottom of page 147. My heart's beating too quickly. What if they're right? 
Could it be true? Could there be somewhere to run besides the wilderness, somewhere safe? If a community exists in District 13, would it be better to go there where I might be able to accomplish something instead of waiting here for my death? But then, if there are people in District 13 with powerful weapons... Why haven't they helped us, I say angrily. If it's true, why do, do they leave us to live like this, with the hunger and the killings and the games? And suddenly I hate this imaginary underground city of District 13 and those who sit by watching us die. They're no better than the capital. We don't know, Bonnie whispers. Right now we're just holding on to the hope that they exist. That snaps me to my senses. These are delusions. District 13 doesn't exist because the capital would never let it exist. They're probably mistaken about the footage. Mocking jays are about as rare as rocks and about as tough. If they could survive the initial bombing of 13, they're prob probably doing better than ever now. And right here we get the seed planted that maybe we should be wary of District 13 because, spoiler alert, in Mockingjay, uh, we learn that things are not so black and white and people on both sides of this conflict are responsible for some pretty bad war crimes. Uh, but no time to dwell on that right now. Uh, we can do plenty of that in the future. Uh, so Katniss helps out Bonnie and Twill as much as she can. She thinks that uh, what they're doing is insane, but given that they've lost everything and are desperate, she hopes that they can at least find a way to carve a life out for themselves in the woods, though the odds are not in their favor, as we will see. Uh, Katniss shows Twill the basics of hunting and then shows her how to skin a squirrel and shows them how to build a proper fire and tells them the details of the situation in 12. Uh, they thank her and Katniss leaves so that she can be home before it gets too dark. And just like with most chapters, I'm going to end this with a reading since uh, Suzanne is showing off her good writing yet again. And because of the classic Suzanne Collins style, uh, significant things happened at the end of the chapter that makes it go, oh shit. Listening to Bonnie and Twill confirmed one thing. President Snow has been playing me for a fool. All the kisses and endearments in the world couldn't have derailed the momentum building up in District 8. Yes, my holding out the berries could, had been the spark, but I had no way to control the fire. He must have known that. So why visit my home? Why order me to persuade the crowd of my love for Peta? It was obviously a ploy to distract me and keep me from doing anything else in Flamori in the districts, and to entertain the people in the capital, of course. I suppose the wedding is just a necessary extension of that. I'm nearing the fence when a mockingjay lights on a branch and trills at me. At the sight of it, I realize I never got a full explanation of the bird on the cracker and what it signifies. It means we're on your side. That's what Bonnie said. I have people on my side? What side? Am I unwittingly the face of the hope for rebellion? Has the mockingjay on my pin become a symbol of resistance? If so, my side's not doing too well. You only have to look at what happened in 8 to know that. I stash my weapons in the hollow log nearest my old home in the seam and head for the fence. I'm crouched on one knee preparing to enter the meadow, but I'm still so preoccupied with the day's events that it takes a sudden screech of an owl to bring me back to my senses. In the fading light, the chain links looks as innocent as usual, but what makes me jerk back my hand is the sound. 
like a buzz of a tree full of tracker jacker nests, indicating the fence is alive with electricity. Like I said, that's an oh shit ending. Uh, and also, before that happens, let's just uh, talk about for a minute the passage where Katniss again reiterates that people have been angry about all the injustices for a long time and nothing she could do now could stop the coming rebellion. Um, but this is the first time she realizes that Snow knew that and, you know, he was just trying to distract her because it's what he does best, manipulating everyone around him. So yeah, uh, with that being said, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we'll see how Katniss problem-solves her way out of uh, this little conundrum. Alright, we are back, so we are picking up right where we left off. Uh, the electricity on the fence is now turned on and Katniss is stuck outside of it. So almost immediately Katniss backs up into the tree line out of sight so that hopefully no one spots her. And needless to say, her mind is now racing and she worries that Thread knows she escaped into the woods uh, that day and set this whole thing up as an excuse to arrest her. And while Katniss has gotten caught outside of the woods before with the fence on, it always eventually turned off, but now she's not so sure. Plus, her family doesn't know where she went today, so it's more important than ever that she get to the other side of the fence. Uh, plus, it's a little too convenient that the power on the fence, you know, turned back on the same day that she escapes into the woods for the first time in a while, because... Uh, let's not forget, it was near the fence that Gail kissed Katniss and Snow found out about it. So it's not hard to believe that there would be a camera nearby that caught Katniss leaving or that she was spotted leaving and by someone, you know, because informers are a thing. And even if they didn't see her face, it wouldn't be hard for Thread to guess who it might be. So Katniss scans the meadow and doesn't see any signs of peacekeepers at least so the best plan is to get back on the other side and just pretend she never left uh, obviously she can't touch the fence because it would leave a very uh, big mark and she can't go under it because the ground is practically frozen and it'd be dangerous to burrow under anyway so her only options to go over it uh, Katniss hikes for about a mile along the tree line before she finds one that'll work, uh, an old maple tree with a branch that hangs above the barbed wire, and I can't help thinking, is this the hanging tree from the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes? Because I went back to my copy of Ballad, and the first uh, hanging scene, uh, Coriolanus describes it as the tree as uh, having the same kind of branches as the one Katniss is climbing right now. And he doesn't specifically say that it's a maple tree, but then again, Coriolanus uh, grew up a privileged city boy who had never seen a forest before. He probably considered like knowledge like knowing the different kinds of trees beneath him. Uh, after all, we know how he feels about the forest and things that can't be controlled. And also, we know that the hanging tree is at the edge of the forest, and obviously the one Candace is climbing is at sitting at the edge because you know it's the best one she uses to get over the fence uh anyway it's a theory let me know what you guys think uh so Katniss makes it up the tree right on onto the right branch but now she has to drop 25 feet 
that's very risky, but no other choice. And as I'm sure we can all predict, uh, Katniss is injured from the fall, specifically her tailbone and left heel, and she probably broke something. Uh, the good news, though, was that she can still walk, but uh, still has to try to hide her limp as best she can. Uh, before going home, Katniss stops at some of the shops that are still open in order to give herself a little bit of an alibi, so she buys some white cloths for bandages and a bag of sweets for Prim. Uh, when Katniss walks through the front door, she's ready to collapse by the fire, but instead she's greeted by two peacekeepers. Uh, Prim, Mrs. Everdeen, Peta, and Hamish are also there, and I'm just going to read this whole scene out loud because I really love watching them all work together to help uh, cover Katniss and ultimately force the peacekeepers just to leave in very bad moods. So this whole thing starts on page 154. Hello, I say in a neutral voice. My mother appears behind them, but keeps her distance. Here she is, just in time for dinner, she says a little too brightly. I'm very late for dinner. I consider removing my boots as I normally would, but doubt I can manage it without revealing my injuries. Instead, I just pull off my wet hood and shake the snow from my hair. Can I help you with something? I ask the peacekeepers. Head peacekeeper Thread sent us with a message for you, says the woman. They've been waiting for hours, my mother adds. They've been waiting for me to fail to return, to confirm I got electrocuted by the fence or trapped in the woods so they could take my family in for questioning. Must be an important message, I say. May we ask where you've been, Miss Everdeen? The woman asks. Easier to ask where I haven't been, I say with a sound of exasperation. I cross into the kitchen, forcing myself to use my foot normally, even though every step is excruciating. I pass between the peacekeepers and make it to the table all right. I fling my bag down and turn to Prim, who's standing stiffly by the hearth. Uh, Hamish and Peta are there as well, sitting in a pair of matching rockers playing a game of chess. Were they here by chance or invited by the peacekeepers? Either way, I'm glad to see them. So where haven't you been, says Hamish in a bored voice. Well, I haven't been talking to the goat man about getting Prim's goat pregnant because someone gave me completely inaccurate information as to where he lives, I say to Prim. No, I didn't, says Prim. I told you exactly. You said he lives beside the west entrance to the mine, I say. The east entrance, Prim corrects me. You distinctly said west because when I said next to the slag heap and you said, yeah, I say. The slag heap is next to the east entrance, says Prim patiently. No, when did you say that, I demand. Last night, Hamish chimes in. It was definitely the east, adds Peta. He looks at Hamish and they laugh. I glare at Peta and he tries to look contrite. I'm sorry, but it's what I've been saying. You don't listen when people talk to you. That people told you he didn't live there today and you didn't listen again, says Hamish. Shut up, Hamish, I said, clearly indicating he's right. Hamish and Peta crack up, and Prim allows herself a smile. Fine, somebody else can arrange to get the stupid goat knocked up, I say, which makes them laugh more. And I think this is why they've made it this far, Hamish and Peta. Nothing throws them. I look at the peacekeepers. The man's smiling, but the woman is unconvinced. What's in the bag? she asks sharply. I know she's hoping for game or wild plants, something that clearly condemns me. I dump the contents on the table. See for yourself. Oh, good, my mother says, examining the cloth. We're running low on bandages. Peta comes to the table and opens the candy bag. 
Ooh, peppermints, he says, popping one in his mouth. They're mine, I say, taking a swipe of the bag. He tosses it to Hamish, who stuffs a fistful of sweets in his mouth before passing the bag to a giggling prim. None of you deserves candy, I say. What, because we're right? Peter wraps his arms around me. I give him a small... I give a small yelp of pain as my tailbone objects. I try to turn it into a sound of indignation, but I can see in his eyes that he knows I'm hurt. Okay, Prim said West. I distinctly heard West. And we're all idiots. How's that? Better, I say, and accept his kiss. Then I look at the peacekeepers as if I'm suddenly remembering they're there. You have a message for me? From head peacekeeper thread, says the woman. He wanted you to know that the fence surrounding District 12 will now have electricity 24 hours a day. Didn't it already? I ask a little too innocently. He thought you might be interested in passing this information to your cousin, says the woman. Thank you. I'll tell him. I'm sure we'll all sleep a little more soundly now that security has addressed that lapse. I'm pushing things. I know it. But the comment gives me a sense of satisfaction. The woman's jaw tightens. None of this has gone as planned, but she has no further orders. She gives me a curt nod and leaves, the man trailing in her wake. When my mother has locked the door behind them, I slump against the table. That reading was probably longer than necessary, but I don't care. I adore this scene. Um, It's somehow, like, tense and lighthearted at the same time, and I love it. It's great. And again, the five of them just feel like a united family, and notice how there are never moments like this with Gail. Anyway, moving on. So Katniss, Katniss admits that she's injured once the peacekeepers leave because, you know, she can't hide it from them. Uh, she tells them that she slipped on some ice, but no one buys it. But they know that there's a good chance the house is bugged, so they don't ask any more questions. Uh, Mrs. Everdeen determines that Katniss's heel is probably broken and her tailbone is bruised. Uh, they get Katniss ready for bed and her mother puts some sleep syrup in her tea and Peta literally carries her to bed and tucks her in. And it's just so sweet. I love this man. And I have to read this part because it's an iconic book Everlark scene. And I say book because it's not quite in the movie. I mean, it is just in a different location and point in the plot but whatever time for another reading a side effect of the sleep syrup is that it makes people less inhibited like white liquor and i know i have to control my tongue but i don't want him to go in fact i want him to climb in with me uh, to be there when the nightmares hit tonight but for some reason i can't quite form i know i'm not allowed to ask for that don't go yet i say not till i fall asleep Peta sits on the side of the bed, warming my hand in both of his. Almost thought you changed your mind today, when you were late for dinner. I'm foggy, but I can guess what he means. With the fence going on and me showing up late and the peacekeepers waiting, he thought I'd made a run for it. Maybe with Gail. No, I'd have told you, I say. I pull his hand up and lean my cheek against the back of it, taking in the faint scent of cinnamon and dill from the breads he must have baked today. I want to tell him about Twill and Bonnie and the uprising and the fantasy of District 13, but it's not safe to, and I can feel myself slipping away, so I just get out one more sentence. Stay with me. As the tendrils of sleep syrup pull me down, I hear him whisper a word back, but I don't quite catch it. 
I think we all know what that word was, and it is 1,000% more impactful coming from PETA than from Severus Snape. Anyway, uh, Katniss ends up sleeping in, and her mother orders her a week of bed rest, which she more than deserves. And it also gives her plenty of time to think about things. Uh, she thinks about Bonnie and Twill and everything they told her about Thread and if he has instructions coming directly from Snow, which I'm willing to bet that yes, yes he does. Uh, though the good news is that the people in 12 get a brief uh, break from being abused by the peacekeepers because they are busy securing the base of the chain link fence uh, to the ground. Likely Thread thinks uh, that Katniss got back under that way despite the dangerous electric current. Uh, Peta comes by every day and brings her cheese buns because he's the best and he even helps Katniss work on the family book. Um, which is a book uh, someone on Mrs. Everdeen's side of the family started ages ago. Uh, it's composed of pages of drawings and plants and descriptions of medical uses. And Mr. Everdeen added the sections of edible plants. Uh, Katniss has been wanting to add to it, but she isn't a very good artist and having the picture be accurate is very important. And well, it's a good thing she's fake engaged to someone who is a great artist. And ultimately, doing the work is good for Katniss. Um, it's quiet and helps take her mind off everything that's stressing her out. And that's honestly how I feel whenever I give myself time to play my instruments, especially the violin. I don't know, it gives me like a sense of focus where I don't think about anything else anymore. Uh, time is meaningless and I don't feel the need to check my phone or think about anything else. So if you play an instrument, uh, make sure you keep giving yourself time to practice it, even if you're not playing in a show anytime soon. And if you don't play one, uh, I encourage you to learn to do so, uh, to at least give it a shot. Uh, this message brought to you by Bookish Babbles. Do soothing activities that relax your mind and improve your mental health. Where was I? Uh, oh, right, uh, PETA helping Katniss with the family book. Um, also, I think this is probably the moment when Katniss starts to truly fall in love with Peeta, though she obviously doesn't realize it yet. Like, I'm not even going to explain it. I'm just going to read you the passage on page uh, 161. It's quiet, absorbing work that helps take my mind off my troubles. I like to watch his hand as he works, making a blank page bloom with strokes of ink, adding touches of color to our previously black and yellowish book. His face takes on a special look when he concentrates. His usual easy expression is replaced by something more intense and removed that suggests an entire world locked away inside him. I've seen flashes of this before, in the arena or when he speaks to a crowd, or the time he shoved the peacekeeper's guns away from me in District 11. I don't know quite what to make of it. I also become a little fixated on his eyelashes, which ordinarily you don't notice much because they're so blonde. But up close in the sunlight, slanting in from the window, they're, they're a light golden color and so long, I don't see how they keep from getting all tangled up when he blinks. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I don't think I pay that close attention to someone unless, you know, there are budding romantic feelings. Like, I'm pretty sure she doesn't give details about Gail on this, like, level of intimate, just saying. And there's like a page and a half left of this chapter, so I'm just going to read it because I don't have much more to say other than we get a little more Everlark fluff and 
Katniss notices something significant on TV. Uh, one afternoon, Peta stops shading a blossom and looks up so suddenly that I, that I start as though I were caught spying on him, which in a strange way, maybe I was. But he only says, You know, I think this is the first time we've ever done anything normal together. Yeah, I agree. Our whole relationship has been tainted by the games. Normal was never a part of it. Nice for a change. Each afternoon, he carries me downstairs for a change of scenery, and I unnerve everyone by turning on the television. Usually, we only watch when it's mandatory because it's a mixture of propaganda and displays of, of the capital power, including clips from 74 years of Hunger Games. It's so odious. But now I'm looking for something special. The Mockingjay that Bonnie and Twill are basing all their hopes on. I know it's probably foolish, but if it is, I want to rule it out and erase the idea of a thriving District 13 from my mind for good. My first sighting is in a news story refreshing the dark days. I see the smoldering remains of the Justice Building in District 13 and just catch the black and white underside of a Mockingjay's wing as it flies across the upper right-hand corner. That doesn't prove anything, really. It's just an old shop that goes with an old tale. However, several days later, something else grabs my attention. The main newscaster is reading a piece about a shortage of graphite affecting the manufacturing of items in District 3. They cut to what is supposed to be live footage of a female reporter encased in a protective suit standing in front of the ruins of the Justice Building in 13. Through her mask, she reports that, unfortunately, a study ha has a... A study has just today determined that the mines of District 13 are still too toxic to approach. End of story. But just before they cut back to the main newscaster, I see the unmistakable flash of the same Mockingjay's wing. The reporter has simply been incorporated into the old footage. She's not in District 13 as, at all, which begs the question, what is? Perhaps Bonnie and Twill were right? Question mark? Uh, guess we have to keep reading to find out. Uh, but we're first going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about chapter 12. We're back and we're talking about chapter 12 or as I like to call it the chapter where we get some nice fluff that makes us lower our guard right before the, a major axe drops. Maybe this series is one of the reasons I develop trust issues because it's like the second things calm down something worse happens. So thanks for that Suzanne. Anyway moving on from that I guess. Uh, after seeing the footage of the Mockingjay in 13, Katniss now feels more restless than ever. She wants to be out doing something, but obviously still can't because of her foot. And it doesn't help that when Hamish brings news about what's going on in town, it's always bad news because it's always people being punished or dropping from starvation. Uh, Katniss's foot is unstable once the weather... No, wait. Uh, Katniss's foot is usable. Okay, take two, Allison. Excuse me. <laughs> Dear God. Uh, Katniss's foot is usable once the weather starts getting warmer and she goes to bed one night determined to go into town the next morning, but instead wakes up to the faces of her prep team looking down on her, which props to Katniss for not screaming or lashing out in that moment, especially as someone with PTSD. 
Like, I have strong reactions when someone wakes me up, uh, even when it's just someone like my mom. Uh, never mind three people I didn't expect to see in my house that day who wear enough makeup to make them look like scary clowns. Uh, at least that's how my brain would see them, you know, first thing in the morning um, after opening my eyes. And this is why Katniss is the heroine of the story and not me. So anyway, they're obviously here because it's Katniss's bridal photo shoot um, here three weeks early. Uh, Katniss acts like she's thrilled about it, though this is when she and me should have realized something was up. Uh, isn't everything always so obvious in hindsight? Anyway, uh, so Vania, Octavia, and Flavius were obviously concerned about Katniss's face because of the whiplash injury. But luckily, Mrs. Everdeen is an excellent healer and everything's fine now. Uh, when they ask Katniss how she got hurt, uh, she gives the slipped-on-ice excuse and realizes that she needs to start getting more creative with her excuses because you can only fake slip-on-ice so many times, I guess. Now me, however, I can get away with that excuse multiple times. Why? Because I'm a klutz. And everyone who knows me would buy that lie. Uh, anyway, on the bright side, Katniss doesn't have to be waxed, at least. Uh, she only needs to be shaved since she'll be hairless for just a few hours. Uh, the team uh, chatters as usual and Katniss tunes them out until she hears Octavia make a comment about how she couldn't get shrimp for a party. And this clues Katniss in on the fact that District 4 is also rebelling. And like I said before, one or two episodes ago, I can't remember. But like I've said before, I want a book about District 4 because they are so interesting. They're a career district, yet they are one of the first to start openly rebelling against the Capitol. So if, if you asked me back when I read book one for the first time, which districts I thought I would expect to start rebelling first, four would not have been on that list. So anyway, Katniss begins to casually ask about any other products they've had trouble getting as a way to figure out, you know, which districts are rebelling. And she deduces that it's three, four, and of course, District 8. So no surprise later on when we learn that uh, victors from those districts are on Katniss's side. Sinna is there, of course. He clearly doesn't buy the slipped on ice story, but he doesn't ask questions. Uh, the living room has been cleared out for the photo shoot, and Effie is in her element, having the time of her life ordering everyone around. And, you know what? Good for her. Uh, someone should be having a good time in all this chaos. Uh, Katniss gets to try on six dresses, each uh, with their own headpiece, shoes, and jewelry. And she's very tired and hungry by the end of it, since she's barely had a chance to get a few bites of food in. Uh, Prim got home in time to see the last two dresses, and she and their mother are happily talking about the dresses and the photo shoot, and Katniss realizes it's because it, they think it means she's safe, that surely the Capitol wouldn't go through the trouble of throwing Katniss a big, lavish wedding if they were going to kill her. And it just makes what's coming at the end of this chapter even sadder. And to make things even better, uh, Katniss has a nightmare where she runs through the wilderness in a wedding dress being chased by mutts. Cause sounds like a great time. Uh, Katniss gets up and eats breakfast with her family, then goes out to try and find someone to talk to. She winds up going to Hamish's house where Hazel's already uh, cleaning up and uh, Katniss and Hamish go for a walk. 
As they walk, Katniss updates him on everything she's learned, and he tells her about rumors of uprisings in District 7 and 11. And they also come to the conclusion that an uprising wouldn't work in 12 since they're a much smaller district who wouldn't stand a chance unless, you know, the entire district rebelled. And Hamish also debunked uh, Bonnie and Twill's theory about 13 still being alive. I see what you're doing, Hamish. But more on that later. Uh, So when Prim comes home from school that day, she's excited because the teachers told her that there was going to be some, you know, uh, big special event on TV that night, and she's convinced that it's Katniss's bridal photo shoot. Uh, Katniss hopes that it isn't true because she hasn't had a chance to prepare Gail for that yet, and they haven't seen a whole lot of each other since his whipping. Uh, Usually they get a few minutes of privacy together. Together. Take two. Uh, usually they only get a few minutes of privacy together when walking into town, and she's learned that the rumblings of an uprising have been subdued due to Thread's crackdowns. And seeing Katniss in a bunch of wedding dresses won't be the easiest thing for him. Um, whatever, though. And But Prim is right, because when they turn on the TV that night, Caesar Flickerman is there to host the show, as usual. Uh, Cinna is also there to be briefly interviewed. Initially, he had designed two dozen gowns, and people in the capital could vote for their favorite at each stage, and the dresses Katniss uh, tried on were the final six. And the presentation ends with Caesar saying that that votes uh, to pick the winner are due the following day, and tells everyone to stay tuned for the big announcement regarding the quarter quell. And it's the reading of the card ceremony when, you know, they announce what the special twist for the quarter quell is going to be that year. Uh, So now Snow is doing another one of his speeches. Uh, First, he uh, recaps the history and the reason behind the quarter quells, you know, to help keep fresh the horrors brought on brought on that, you know, when the districts rebelled, which, you know, couldn't be more uh, poignant than right now, I guess. Um, for the 25th games, the districts had to hold an election to choose which kids were going to be tributes that year as a way to remind the rebels that their children were dying because of the choice they made to enact violence. And I don't know about you guys, but that seems like large-scale gaslighting to me, but no time to dwell on that. And also, Katniss and I both agree that it would suck much more to have your district turn against you by voting for you to go into a death arena rather than just being randomly chosen. And also, horrible for the fa- for the surviving family members as well of those tributes because it's like, you just look at all your like friends and neighbors now and wonder like, uh, who voted for my child to, you know, die? Which... Glad glad we don't get to experience that Hunger Games, because that just sounds awful. Uh, anyway, so, and as we know, for the 50th Hunger Games of the year Hamish won, each district had to provide double the amount of tributes as a reminder that for every capital citizen that died, two rebels died in return. And this is when Mrs. Everdeen tells us about Maisie Donner for the first time who is her best friend who went into the arena that year and, you know, obviously didn't make it out. And from there, I'm just going to read to the end of the chapter. And now we honor our third quarter quell, says the president. The little boy in white steps forward, holding out the box as he opens the lid. 
We can see the tidy upright rows of yellowed envelopes whoever devised the quarter quill system had prepared for centuries of hunger games. The president removes an envelope clearly marked with a 75. He runs his finger under the flap and pulls out a small square of paper. Without hesitation, he reads, On the 75th anniversary, as a reminder to the rebels that even the strongest among them cannot overcome the power of the capital, the male and female tributes will be reaped from their existing pool of victors. My mother gives a faint shriek and Prim buries her face in her hands, but I feel more like the people I see in the crowd on television, slightly baffled. What does it mean? Existing pool of victors? Then I get it. What it means, at least for me, District 12 only has three existing victors to choose from, two male, one female. I'm going back into the arena. Like, I know this series is known for its chapter cliffhangers but oh my god like i remember the first time reading this scene and kind of like katniss not comprehending what it meant at first like i remember reading the line existing pool of victors for the first time and i just didn't get it like it didn't hit me until the line i'm going back into the arena because it just felt too unreal like what and at the time i was reading this the first movie hadn't come out yet, so there were no Catching Fire trailers um, to clue me in on the fact that Katniss would have to go into the Hunger Games again. I had no reason to believe that would happen. And also, we agreed that the card was rigged, right? Like, there's no way that's what had been originally written on the card. There's even a deleted scene from the movie that shows Plutarch switching out the real envelope that had originally been written for the third quarter quell. So uh, I, I kind of look at that as confirmation. But yeah. Uh, oh, I'll link that. Um, I'll find that scene, that lead scene on YouTube and I'll link it in the show notes. But yeah, uh, next time we'll talk about the aftermath of all that. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. It means It honestly means the world to me and I love it. And I love you guys for it. Uh, next week, we will be talking about chapters uh, 13 to 15. And yeah, think, think, we're getting into the quarter quell, guys. Uh, things are going to get insane. Uh, don't forget to, you know, subscribe, follow, obviously, so you get notified when new episodes come out. And if you are listening on Apple Podcast, uh leave a a rating and review so more wonderful people like yourselves can find the podcast and I of course link the podcast Instagram and TikTok in the show notes Um, and I think that's everything I need to say Uh, I'm so bad at wrapping these episodes up but yeah again thank you for listening I hope you all have a great day slash night and I will talk to y'all next time bye